organised jointly by CPGB and Labour Party Marxists. And we've got uh, Jack Conrad for the Provisional Central Committee um, of CPGB talking about this week in politics. Not any week, this week. John, Jack. <laughs> Doesn't matter, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think we'll begin with the, um, the obvious and uh, the obvious is obviously Donald Trump. And it was obvious from the beginning uh, that Donald Trump wouldn't be found guilty uh, by the Senate. Um, everyone uh, knew that. He knew it. His lawyers knew it. The Democrats knew it. And the Republicans uh, knew it. Nevertheless, um, in terms of the very, very, very quick trial, no calling of witnesses, definitely made for TV. Um, you know, the Democrats uh, fielded these um, uh, videos of um, the storming of the Capitol and um, uh, the security cameras, as well as um, uh, footage uh, that was self-filmed uh, by um, uh, the various... Um, um, individuals who were filming themselves and filming their friends and filming, filming the attack on the police. All of that was put up um, onto TV, out into the social media. Now, in terms of the result, while the result wasn't unexpected, quite the opposite, uh, what we have is a shift, uh, at least amongst a section um, of um, the Republicans. And therefore, what you had this time uh, in terms of impeachment two, as compared with impeachment one, is that uh, there were seven uh, Republican senators that voted for impeachment. Last time it was just one, uh, that was Mick Romney. Um, so it's gone from one uh, to seven. Uh, that's still not enough uh, to get a two thirds majority. There is a majority in favor of um, impeaching Trump. But it's also significant that if you take Mitch McConnell, the uh, leader um, of um, um, the Republicans um, in the um, Senate, that he was saying that he voted against impeachment and a number of other um, Republicans said the same thing. They're voting against uh, the Democrat motion, basically on a technicality. Uh, that um, either uh, the Constitution doesn't allow uh, the Senate to put on trial a private individual, an ex-president, uh, it only allows them to put on trial a sitting president or some other um, technical detail um, of that nature. So it, it sort of let them off the hook. They were uh, condemning uh, Trump, uh, but basically uh, they didn't want to be seen uh, to um, impeach him. Um, what impeachment would mean, I'll leave it to others, uh, but it would also include uh, Trump running in 2024, uh, which I think is a very much of uh, an open uh, question. So there's been a shift um, in the um, uh, Republican um, um, senators, and I think there's also been uh, divisions um, in the Republican Party uh, itself, deeper down, and we'll come to that. 
what I wanted to do in the meantime is just simply ask the question, what is Trump? You know, what was Trump? What is Trump? What is Trumpism? And I haven't got a, um, an easy uh, answer, but what I would say is that uh, we are not confined to um, uh, two categories, uh, and that's the category on the one side, so-called bourgeois uh, democracy, which personally, although I would not not use the word, I think is an oxymoron. Um, I don't think that democracy comes with capitalism var capitalism. I don't think it's a byproduct of uh, the accumulation of capital. Uh, I think it's very much a product, i.e. the democracy side of it. It's very much a, a product of uh, capital accumulation uh, creating the working class and uh, the working class itself within capitalism constitutes itself as a counter power uh, uh, to the bourgeoisie. And that could be at the level at the most basic level of the class struggle, um, you know, in terms of resisting the boss, speeding it up, um, resisting pay cuts, demanding pay increases, trade union uh, politics, all the way through uh, to the sort of organization that we saw in Germany uh, before World War One, uh, which I think rightly was described as almost being a state within a state. So that German social democracy had its uh, beer cellars, uh, its pubs, it had its papers, it had its sports teams, it had its women's organization, youth organization, you name it, uh, both inside the workplace and outside the workplace, social democracy uh, could organize the working class. Uh, and it you know, had its own insurance, uh, health services, you name it. Not a state, uh, but nonetheless, something approaching that level uh, of organization. So in my terms, uh, there is such a thing as bourgeois democracy, but it needs to be understood as two opposites. Uh, and the democratic side of it uh, is the working class. Um, that's my basic take on it. We can go into details, but um, that's my basic uh, proposition. So on the one side, there are those on the left that talk about bourgeois democracy, which often they mean as something that comes naturally uh, with capitalism. So somehow there's bound to be a, democ a bourgeois democracy in China, there's bound to be a bourgeois democracy in Saudi Arabia. It don't come, uh, but somehow uh, they expect it because you've got the development of capitalism. So I reject that um, uh, notion, but I also reject the notion uh, that the only other alternative we've got in terms of thinking uh, about capitalist society uh, is fascism. Uh, I do think that the minds of um, today's left is still very much clouded uh, by the history of the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. So often um, on the British left, I can certainly remember it with, damn it, Edward Heath. Edward Heath um, being described as creeping fascism. Because yes, uh, there you had uh, uh, Edward Heath trying to introduce, and he did, uh, the Industrial Relations Act uh, that uh, banned uh, legally effective trade unionism. And so a lot of the left, yes, talked about uh, Heath being himself a fascist or somehow uh, opening the door uh, to fascism. And since then, of course, uh, I suppose the most notable example of that very limited 
uh, imagination is the handling of, uh, of Margaret Thatcher. But the same thing has happened uh, with Donald Trump. Clearly, Donald Trump has um, did have as president um, authoritarian tendencies, and the left has a bad habit of simply saying, well, there's normal bourgeois democracy, we like that, but then there's fascism. Well, in my view, you know, okay, um, it's not exactly enriching the palette of originality, uh, but I do, do want to bring, in that sense, uh, another category into the discussion, and that's borrowed from the 19th uh, uh, century, uh, and that's the category of Bonapartism, something that Marx wrote about, obviously in particular, uh, about Louis Napoleon, uh, Napoleon III, uh, but also he referenced inevitably uh, the uncle, uh, the great Napoleon. This is when he was talking about, you know, history, first of all, being uh, first time around farce. No, excuse me, tragedy, second time around farce. It was uh, Napoleon III uh, that was the farce. Uh, Napoleon I was tragedy because uh, he killed off um, uh, the French Revolution, the, the, the impulse uh, from below, uh, famously, um, by letting off uh, cannons uh, against the uh, Paris uh, crowd. So I would introduce uh, the category of Bonapartism. Now, that's not to um, uh, draw an equal sign uh, between Trump and uh, the two Napoleons uh, in France, Napoleon I and Napoleon the third. Worthwhile pointing out uh, that both Marx and Engels also talked about Bonapartism in respect to Bismarck. Um, and clearly there's a, there's a big difference between Bismarck and um, Napoleon I and Napoleon II. Napoleon I and Napoleon II were outsiders. Uh, these were not products of the aristocracy. Uh, these were not products of uh, the natural workings of um, uh, um, French politics. If we look at the social base, certainly of uh, Napoleon III, it was the peasantry. Marx also wrote about the social base of uh, uh, the Bonapartist regime in the mid 19th century being the lumpen proletariat, la bohème. Um, but he also talked about Bonapartism appearing to stride uh, um, above society, to straddle. Uh, the two contending classes. Uh, uh, for the bourgeoisie, uh, he was uh, a savior because he saved them uh, from civil war. For the working class, worthwhile pointing out that when he came to power, he came to power uh, on the basis of restoring universal male suffrage. And I'm emphasizing the word universal uh, um, here. Um, we're not talking about the exclusion of women. That was just considered normal uh, in those days. But universal suffrage, that was something else. So he, he, he came uh, in that sense, uh, uh, you know, with gifts, uh, both to the bourgeoisie, uh, but also uh, uh, to those uh, below. Um, if we look, on the other hand, at uh, Bismarck, he was very much a man of the establishment. He was from a, a junker. Uh, background. He was a, a landowner uh, in his own right. Um, he unified Germany, um, you know, famously with uh, blood and iron. Um, very much, though, um, uh, someone 
um, who wasn't challenging uh, the existing order. Nevertheless, Marx and Engels wrote about the parallels um, um, uh, in terms of Bismarck um, and um, um, uh, Bonapartism. And I think we can do the same uh, with Trump as long as we emphasize the American characteristics and, and its uniqueness. So I'm not trying, as I said before, uh, to draw some equal sign uh, between Bismarck or um, Bonapartism and Trump. But nevertheless, I think we do have something uh, to learn uh, from the 19th century. And first of all, uh, what I would emphasize is very much that Trump was an outsider. It's true that he's a son of a, a you know, property developer. He was born uh, famously with a silver spoon in his mouth. He went to a prestige top New York college. So in that sense, he just comes over as uh, a normal millionaire, uh, a normal New York millionaire. But on the other hand, there he is. Where does he make his name? He makes his name um, as a reality TV uh, showman. And all you needed to do, as I'm sure we all did, is look at the early uh, debates um, of the Republican candidates. And I have to say, uh, that when I listened to those debates, my jaw dropped and I was utterly convinced uh, that no matter what happened, there's no way that the Republican establishment would allow Trump uh, to, um, he, you know, to be their candidate uh, in the presidential election. And if they did allow him uh, to be their candidate in the presidential election, he would lose humiliatingly. Well, it just shows how badly uh, I read the situation, how little um, I know, I would readily confess it even now uh, about American uh, politics. We knew that there was a well of anger um, in the United States, but I didn't appreciate how deep and how wide uh, uh, that well of uh, anger was. And that was something that Trump was able to tap into. He was able uh, to talk uh, to the so-called common man and common woman uh, who were Republican voters, but he was also able to offer easy solutions. If jobs have gone abroad to China, well, what we do is we bring them back uh, to America, make America great again. Um, uh, that resonated. Now, we know that Trump uh, didn't win the popular vote, but nevertheless, according to the Constitution, uh, he won. Uh, that surprised me. Uh, what did Trump do uh, from day one? Uh, in my view, and this is what marks him out, this is, this is what shows uh, that he ain't a normal uh, president in terms of US politics, that more or less from day one, and if one wanted to get into um, the argument, you could say even before that, what you had is a president determined on a self-coup. Now we can talk about, and it's true, uh, the, the, the very position of uh, U.S. president itself um, as a constitutional position ha has elements of Bonapartism. Uh, the president uh, is enormously powerful, uh, can veto legislation, can suggest legislation, can start foreign wars. In reality, uh, you know, the, the powers are enormous. The commander in chief. On the other hand, what we had with uh, Trump is someone who openly declared uh, that he wanted to be a third term president. This is in his first term. And clearly, you know, OK, he's of a certain age, 
uh, I think what you were talking about there um, is in effect, I want to be president for life. Um, and all you need to do is look at the politicians around the world that he admired, uh, Putin, Z. Um, you know, th these are the people that he looks to uh, as models. Now, basically, since um, um, FDR, Franklin uh, Roosevelt, uh, you've had um, uh, a position of where it's not just custom uh, that presidential terms uh, are limited. That's something that was uh, laid down uh, by, by law. Uh, and Trump basically was coming along and saying, well, we'll find a way uh, around that. Um, maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't, uh, but he tried to do that throughout his first term. Uh, and if we look uh, uh, at the November the 20th uh, elections, he was already, because he could see the opinion polls, um, he knew he was behind. Um, it's no doubt true. Uh, that he wouldn't have been so far behind if it hadn't been for that microscopic uh, coronavirus. Uh, that certainly did his uh, uh, economic package no good. He was shown to be incompetent um, when it came to coronavirus. He played it down as people were dying, um, including, of course, inevitably, his own uh, supporter base. So what was remarkable uh, about Trump uh, isn't how few votes he got, but it's how many uh, votes he got. He increased his electoral base. Uh, quite a remarkable uh, performance. He lost the popular vote. And of course, he lost, lost the vote in the Electoral College. And what marked him out wasn't sort of some minor dispute about you know, this vote or that vote or, or whatever. That goes on in British general elections uh, all the time. It goes on in every election. What marked him out uh, was his challenge, uh, basically, to those that voted by post, um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, that these votes were somehow illegitimate, that Biden's victory, which was clear to anybody, but everybody, you know, who, who, who looked at the facts, uh, he was in denial. But it wasn't just a question of denial. Uh, what he wanted to do, and that was clear, was to involve the courts. But also what he wanted to do, and we saw that with uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations, but we also saw it uh, in other ways, is involve the army, the armed forces uh, in domestic uh, affairs. I mean, why the hell otherwise do you get uh, um, uh, a situation of where he's serving um, Secretary of Defense, he's serving um, um, you know, um, chief of staff in, in terms of um, uh, the military actually come out and say, we will not be used, the army, the air force, the navy, the marines will not be used in terms of domestic politics. And those that attempt it to do break the constitution. You know, why do you get a situation uh, of where 10, the surviving 10 former uh, defense secretaries clearly were still very close contacts uh, with the Pentagon uh, come out in a joint letter, I think, in the Washington Post, uh, saying that uh, uh, any attempt to use the armed forces uh, in domestic politics is illegitimate and anyone attempts to do so uh, will pay the price. I mean, it's not something we normally get, is it, before a British general election or after 
a British election. Um, I can imagine the opposite being said um, if Jeremy Corbyn, by some fluke, um, had uh, won uh, the last general election with a majority of Labour MPs that would be willing to actually vote with him uh, in a vote of confidence, I hasten to add, then I can imagine the army stepping in saying this is an illegitimate result that we will defend the Queen um, who isn't going to call Jeremy Corbyn or whatever, whatever, whatever. Clearly, we were dealing with a, a situation of where uh, Trump's attempted self-coup uh, was um, attempting to involve the army. And when he failed uh, in the courts, that's where it went next. And having failed to involve the army, what did he turn to? He turned to the deplorables, uh, to use a, a phrase from Hillary Clinton. From a Marxist point of view, it's quite fascinating because to the extent that we know um, the sort of sociological makeup of these deplorables that gathered for the um, Save America rally and then went uh, to uh, the Capitol or who, who, or who were already gathering outside the Capitol even before uh, Trump had spoken uh, at the other end of Pennsylvania uh, Avenue. Uh, th these people seem to conform almost in a classic way uh, to um, uh, the enraged petty bourgeoisie. So we have, in terms of arrests and uh, all the rest of it, people describing themselves as CEOs. Well, I don't think they're CEOs of uh, transnational companies. Uh, I think we're talking about very small uh, employers. We're talking about the self-employed. We're talking about a lot of army vets, and I'm talking about veterans um, here. We're talking about a lot of serving police uh, officers uh, as well. So a classic example. Uh, I would argue, uh, of the enraged petty bourgeoisie um, that we know from, you know, Italy, uh, Germany, from the 1920s uh, and 1930s. So what happened um, on um, January the 6th? Um, there are those, uh, amazingly, um, um, on the left that seem to sort of take the same position as um, Donald Trump's, has to be said, incompetent uh, defense team. Uh, that uh, there is Donald Trump. Well, he, he didn't say anything else uh, other than what a normal politician says about fight them uh, and about resist. Uh, and he even used the word peaceful. Uh, at one point, I, I think any such suggestion that this that these were normal times and that was a, a normal, you know, um, a political rally. Uh, I mean, the, to me, the word imbecilic, imbecilic, uh, you know, uh, doesn't even fit the bill. I, I, I'm sort of somewhat flabbergasted uh, that comrades such as uh, Counterfar, John Rees, um, uh, and, and one just, you know, one carries on. Uh, down the list to so say that this wasn't um, um, a coup. Uh, and indeed, in my um, recent article in the Weekly Worker, I, I quote John Rees's uh, assessment of it, which is just it, not only uh, imbecilic, but I think historically uh, amazingly ill-informed. We said this wasn't the real thing. This was the um, uh, beer, beer hall putsch. Uh, well, have a look at the beer hall putsch. 
the reason why they call it a putsch is because it was a putsch. It's a coup. It failed, but it was a coup. Hitler marches in uh, to this, um, you know, beer hall. Um, there's a, a top um, Bavarian um, political figure. Um, Bavaria is under sort of um, uh, basically dictatorial rule. And there's one of them mouthing forth in front of a crowd of 3,000. He marches to the front. He's got a pistol drawn. He takes these people out uh, into a side room and basically persuades them uh, to his uh, coup. Not all of them instantly persuade at a at gunpoint. You will join my march on um, uh, Berlin. This is Hitler, by the way, believing uh, that a year before or a couple of years before Mussolini really had marched on uh, Rome and you know came to power through a march. Uh, that's what he believed. And his plan was seize state power in Bavaria with its army, its uh, armed forces, its armed police force, uh, with its uh, military, semi-military uh, government. And then you go uh, to Berlin uh, and you take power because that's what he thought Mussolini had actually uh, done. That was the mythology of it. But the reality was anyway, uh, that um, um, however humiliatingly uh, the beer hall putsch failed and it did fail um, because although uh, when they were um, having persuaded uh, these people to go with their coup, lots of, lots of them decamp, scuttle off. Nonetheless, what you had is a force of about 2000 Nazis with Hitler at the front uh, with World War One hero General Ludendorff uh, next to him, marching into the center of um, uh, Munich, and they were going to go straight to the um, a defense headquarters and declare, um, you know, rebellion against the central government. They were met by one cordon of uh, police who basically parted and let them uh, continue. Remember, this putsch attempt had sympathy in the army, certainly had sympathy uh, amongst uh, policemen. Policemen tend to be the most right wing um, people in society. But then they come up to a cordon of the green police force. Again, I'm not uh, expert enough on Germany to say the significance of that. And they shoot them. Who opened fire first? We don't know. But 14 Nazis or no, 16 Nazis were killed. Four police were killed. Hitler was wounded. Uh, the thing just then uh, collapses. But the point I'm making is that the beer hall putsch is called a putsch because it was a putsch. It did not succeed, but it was a putsch. Another word for a putsch is a coup. So John Reese talking about it wasn't the real thing. It was the real thing. It was the real thing, John, but it failed. That's what you need to get into your head. So this wasn't a nothing. This wasn't um, a political demonstration that got out of control. This is Trump, the president, the chief executive, the commander in chief, knowing what he was doing. Uh, the idea uh, that, um, you know, the commander in chief isn't in receipt of FBI and other such intelligence, intelligence agency reports of what these people had planned and therefore the nature of his words, uh, that's just inconceivable. Uh, he knew and if he didn't know, and if he was too lazy to know, those around him would have known uh, that people like the Proud Boys were in communication with the three percenters 
about actually introducing heavy weaponry uh, into the situation. Not only body armor and sidearms, uh, but heavy, heavy uh, weaponry. That was the sort of discussion that was going on. The discussion that was going on was that we need to break glass. We need to bust down doors. We need to have blood flowing. And it's clear that having failed to persuade uh, the vice president, uh, Pence, uh, to break with the Constitution, these people are told by Trump, go for Pence, go for Pence. And it was only four hours after he'd begun speaking did he use the word uh, peaceful, go home. That's after the coup had failed. And anyone who looks at the, um, uh, the Democrat um, um, film, uh, you know, cannot but forget there's uh, uh, Pence uh, scurrying around uh, the Capitol building. What do they call it with the nuclear football? Uh, the code, you know, the, the, the code uh, stuff uh, that can launch a nuclear war. If the president is out, it's the vice president that has his finger uh, on the button and going up one corridor and then being rushed back uh, down uh, another corridor. What was the intention um, of uh, the people that invaded uh, the Capitol? Um, was this a, a protest that got out of hand or was this an attempt to force Pence somehow uh, to break with the Constitution, to put a gun at the head of Nancy Pelosi? I mean, I don't know. I'm not a mind reader. Uh, we will find out uh, through, you know, various sources, CIA sources, perhaps FBI sources, trials of exactly what they had in mind. But from all their statements so far, what we've had, maybe this is just nonsense, Trump told us what to do. And remember Trump's um, a statement to the Proud Boys when we first heard about the Proud Boys, this side of the Atlantic. Stand down, but stand by. That was Trump. So he knew who, who he was using. He had some sort of idea of uh, what he was using them for. And if you look at his uh, speech, he was coming out with stuff along the lines. Of, we don't need to persuade the good Republicans. It's the weak Republicans uh, that you need to be uh, after. And that by that time uh, included uh, the vice president himself, who issued a statement that that day saying he would not and could not act unconstitutionally. Well, who the hell was asking him to act unconstitutionally? It has to be the president. It wasn't the Boogaloos, it wasn't the three percenters, it wasn't the Proud Boys, it was his boss. It was the president that was asking him uh, to act uh, unconstitutionally. So in my view, uh, uh, January, the January the 6th uh, was Trump's last throw uh, of the dice. Uh, and you don't understand January the 6th unless you understand it in the context of uh, uh, Trump's uh, drive, not only to be a two-time uh, president, uh, but to be a Bonapartist uh, president who would break with uh, the existing uh, US uh, constitution. In other words, overthrow um, president-elect uh, Biden, overthrow uh, the electoral college, overthrow uh, the existing electorate uh, in the United States and presumably introduce an electorate 
or exclude um, um, those in the electorate, i.e. black people, for example, uh, that tend to vote Democrat and don't tend to vote uh, Republican. Um, okay. So uh, just finally, um, on that score, um, my own view was uh, that in the absence of the police coming over, in the absence of the army coming over, in the absence of the courts uh, breaking with the constitution, the absence of the vice president uh, breaking with the constitution, I don't think Trump's coup had much chance. And what happened, I'm not saying had to happen, uh, but the fact that it happened in the way that it happened should tell us something. Uh, what I would say, though, uh, is while Trump's future is uncertain, you know, will um, um, his um, new home in Florida be his St. Helena or his Elba? Uh, I don't know if you know what my reference is. Elba is in the Mediterranean where uh, Napoleon I was exiled to and then came back from exile to fight Waterloo, which he nearly won? Or is it going to be his St. Helena way down there in the cold Atlantic uh, where the British uh, put him uh, and where he died? I mean, I haven't got a clue. But what I do know, what I think I know, is that the conditions that produced Trump, uh, the conditions that produced uh, this uh, long drawn out self-coup attempt ain't going to go away under Biden. My expectation would be uh, that given the depth of the economic downturn on a global level, um, you know, the bitterness, um, the fear, the insecurity in American society from all sides, from all sides uh, will continue to deepen. And what has been remarkable about the United States is it produced a Trump on the one side, a President Trump on the one side, but also what's been remarkable, uh, stunning for someone like myself, you know, almost joyous, whatever, you know, I've got no illusions in Bernie Sanders, but yes, Bernie Sanders, uh, who ran Hillary Clinton as a socialist candidate, you know, ran her very close and even performed well uh, this time round. And for an organization, again, with all its faults, uh, like the Democratic Socialists of America, to grow into the tens and tens and tens of thousands has been a remarkable development. So my conclusion is uh, that neither the old men, you know, Bernie Sanders on the one side um, or Donald Trump on the other, neither of these old men are the future, but they point to the future uh, in the United States and the future that they point to on the one side is socialism, genuine working class socialism, and on the other barbarism of some form or another. Uh, that's the significance to me uh, of Trump and it's the significance of Bernie Sanders. Okay, moving on. Uh, UK, uh, GDP down just under 10%, um, you know, what is it, 9.9 .9 something. Uh, percent. All the statisticians are telling us this is the biggest drop in GDP in 300 years. Well, of course, 300 years ago, they didn't actually have GDP uh, figures. I think that was something that was produced mm, at a guess um, in the 1930s in America. I'm only guessing uh, to do with the New Deal. That's a guess. Um, either way, uh, yeah, this is a huge economic uh, downturn. 
um, and the world won't come out of it easily. No doubt, um, as uh, the jabs uh, have their effect, economic activity will revive. We'll start to meet again in, you know, face to face. That will be great. We'll be going to get down the pub. That matters uh, to me more than uh, others, perhaps. Um, either way, um, while there will be a bounce, I don't think there will be a quick bounce back to where we were. My own expectation is that we're in for a long period of stagnation. And we're also into a very dangerous period uh, for the working class, for the organized working class. You know, all you need to do is look at British gas workers and they're facing a pay cut. Um, and that is going to be something that the bosses will try to impose in one industry after uh, another. And I think in a period uh, such as this with mass unemployment, a very low demand, a very low profits, uh, that is something that they could succeed in doing. And the working class, of course, must reply to that uh, through trade union organization. But crucially, uh, it needs to reply through political um, organization. If we're weak uh, in the workplace, uh, we can be strong uh, outside uh, the workplace in the sphere of politics, i.e. we need something like the Chartist movement. Uh, we need a mass Marxist party. We need a mass communist uh, party to take us uh, towards um, socialism. I don't know what else can do that job. Comrades who call themselves socialists but say we don't need a Marxist party. Well, tell me how you're going to do it, you know, through uh, a revamped version of the Socialist Alliance, um, Labour Party Mark II. I, I just, sorry, I have to laugh. I, I just think it's sad. You've got to face what is objectively needed and you've got to subordinate day-to-day -day activity to that aim. Uh, Lenin talked about grasping the main links uh, in a contradiction, and that's what we need to do now. And the main link is the party question. And what we're talking about is a Marxist uh, party, a mass party, a party that can contain differences, that doesn't view differences as a, a split uh, question. Anyway, back to the economy. Big, a big downturn, no doubt about that. Um, just, just to carry on with that, um, worth noting um, um, the reports about Amsterdam outperforming the city of London when it comes to trading within Europe. It really does lead you to question uh, the easy assumption that the Tory party is subordinate to the city of London. It's something that all of us can easily trot out. Well, here's the city uh, being left out of the deal. And clearly they didn't like it, uh, but they've had to lump it. The government's turned around and said, well, that's the deal. Uh, I don't know what the lobbying that was going on. But of course, finance capital is very mobile. Um, and uh, yes, it's an advantage to be in Britain uh, because of the English language. Uh, but everybody I've met in uh, the Netherlands speaks English anyway. And you can move, uh, you know, these workers, uh, calling them workers, uh, you know, the, these particular bankers out of London. They can always fly back at weekends, but you can move them to Amsterdam. And clearly um, people have been moved. Head offices have been moved. Trading centres have been moved. Whether, whether the city of London will make it up for that, um, now it's freed from the EU. I very much 
doubt it. Okay, just very quickly, elections in Catalonia. What's interesting about those elections is they don't look like they are going to produce um, a, a government that is committed to, uh, to use a phrase, a second referendum. Um, I don't know what the results will be. Clearly, the nationalists, the separatists are still going to be there. Um, but according to the polls uh, that I've read, the chances are that the biggest party will be the Catalan Socialist Party, the sister party uh, of the Socialist Workers Party that at present time is in government in Madrid, supported uh, by Podemos, who, of course, just become another a governing party, as all these uh, halfway house type parties inevitably uh, do. Uh, you know, what was yesterday's hope uh, for some sections of the left has now just become uh, another uh, coalition partner in a capitalist uh, uh, government. Either way, my main point here is when we look at Scotland, we shouldn't simply look at existing opinion polls and say, well, there's the trend at the moment, it must continue. It shows you that even though Madrid imposed direct rule, um, that even under those conditions where you have the prime minister and other ministers fleeing abroad or facing trial, um, uh, that actually other priorities uh, come onto the uh, agenda, uh, that other priorities uh, find other uh, avenues of expression. So I'm, I'm merely urging a caution. Um, and not looking at Scotland or, for that matter, Catalonia, uh, you know, in a lazy way. Uh, and too much of the left um, in Spain uh, simply trailed uh, the nationalists, bourgeois uh, nationalists, and they're doing exactly the same in Scotland today. Once you had a left in Scotland, now you've got a nationalist left that peddles uh, all the myths, all the, you know, the fables of uh, the most idiotic Scottish nationalist about English oppression going back to 13 whenever, all just nonsense. Just a very quick comment on Labour's um, anti-Semitism um, advisory board. You have to laugh or cry, I don't know which. Margaret Hodge, Mark Gardner of the Community Security Trust, Adrian Cohen of the Jewish Leadership Council, Mike Katz of the Jewish Labour Movement. I'm not going to go on and on and on, uh, but if you wanted, you know, uh, a fix up and that's what they wanted, there's your fix up. Uh, these are Zionists. It's as simple as that. And they will find anybody who's an opponent of Zionism guilty of anti-Semitism. That's just guaranteed. X years ago, they would have found uh, Keir Starmer uh, guilty of um, uh, anti-Semitism because he found it politically convenient and maybe he believed it uh, to stand in solidarity uh, with the Palestinian people. Uh, today, of course, it's not convenient, but neither is it convenient for them to go back to that history. Um, he serves their purposes at the moment. But let's not forget that this isn't just about Keir Starmer. It was never just about Jeremy Corbyn and getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn. It's about uh, the United Kingdom's relationship uh, with the world hegemon, the United States, and its most reliable, most important ally uh, in the Middle East, the unsinkable aircraft carrier that's represented by Israel. No other 
um, ally of the United States is so reliable because the mass of the population supports that alliance with the United States. Something that you couldn't say about the Shah, something you cannot say about the present Saudi regime. If we knew what the average person in the Ridder Street thought, well, we don't, but my guess is that they hate America, uh, just like most people in the uh, Arab street when they can express uh, their views uh, freely. That is what they would come out and say. And we know that the Saudi regime survives only uh, because of uh, US patronage and before that uh, UK uh, patronage. You take away that. And that's what Trump actually said. Uh, if these guys get out of hand, well, we can just kick them and their own people uh, would bring them down. Anyway, yes, uh, Labour Party has equipped itself uh, with um, um, a Zionist um, judge and jury. And um, in spite of uh, 50 people being reinstated, we have no illusions whatsoever that the witch hunt will continue. All we would say is that uh, getting out of the Labour Party is no solution. Um, you know, you get out of the Labour Party, well, okay, you're no longer associated with Keir Starmer. So what? So what? Uh, being with people as they fight, because there's a fight happening in the CLPs, <coughs> there's a fight happening in uh, trade union branches of unions affiliated uh, to the Labour Party. There's a fight back in terms of one initiative and one campaign, maybe too many uh, initiatives and too many campaigns, uh, but it's all going on uh, at the present time. Labour Party members are not taking it standing down. Um, and yeah, lots of people have been suspended. Some people have been reinstated, uh, but this does not mean uh, that Starmer has given up. Uh, uh, we should expect the witch hunt to continue and we should expect it uh, to find its way outside uh, the ranks of the Labour Party into society itself. And all we need to look at is the attempt to know platform uh, Ken Loach, the great filmmaker, Ken Loach. He's invited by the college authorities, not a student union, right? He's a great filmmaker. They invite him along and then the college authorities apologize afterwards uh, because of the offense uh, that has caused. And what's happening at the moment is the government is trying to impose on unwilling universities the IHRA definition and all the examples um, that it provides of what constitutes anti-Semitism. And under that, I would fall under it. Ken Loach would fall under it. Any person that's in solidarity with the Palestinian people would fall uh, uh, under uh, uh, that definition. But the government is forcing that <coughs> upon <coughs> colleges, meanwhile, hypocritically talking about defending free speech. They're not defending free speech. They're attacking free speech. So this is carrying on in society. The chair of this meeting, right? He was sacked, sacked uh, by his Labour council, council, right? Um, uh, under uh, this sort of uh, uh, witch hunt. And it will carry on. We should expect lecturers. Uh, we should expect local government workers. We should expect all manner of people falling foul uh, of this witch hunt. Just look at Mike Pompeo, 
and uh, um, uh, Donald Trump in the United States declaring that Amnesty International was anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic, anti why? Because it dared question what's going on in Palestine and various other uh, um, human rights um, organizations were branded anti-Semitic. Anyone who stands for a boycott, disinvestment and sanctions automatically uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, and we should expect laws uh, being directed um, at us uh, as well. So there's no escape. That's what my that's my argument uh, that you can get out of the Labour Party. Say, well, I'm clear of that. You are not clear of the witch hunt. This is bigger than the Labour Party. It's bigger uh, than uh, Keir Starmer or Jeremy uh, Corbyn. This is about killing off resistance uh, to US wars uh, uh, in defense of Israel um, in the Middle East. Right, coming to the end, just don't want to overdo my time, leave plenty of time for discussion. I wanted to do a couple of other points. Uh, Fukushima, um, big earthquake um, in um, eastern. Uh, Japan on the um, Pacific coast. Uh, this is an aftershock um, from 2011. Remember 2011, 18,000 people killed. A tsunami crashes in uh, to the coast of Japan, overwhelms the Fukuyama, uh, Fukushima, excuse me, Fukushima nuclear power station, um, shuts down, releases uh, radioactivity, uh, a disaster on the same sort of scale as um, Chernobyl or before that, again, get it right, John, me. Um, Ten Mile Island, am I right? Ten Mile Island, I, I think I remember it uh, uh, right. Either way, what that tells me uh, is the inherent danger uh, of nuclear power. There are many people pushing uh, nuclear power because apparently it's clean. It's not clean. It's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. It leaves, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, nuclear waste. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but sometimes with a half-life of thousands and thousands uh, uh, of years. We've had, you know, nuclear accidents. But what about an equivalent of 9-11, uh, of uh, several, you know, Boeing um, Boeing uh, aircraft being launched um, into uh, a nuclear plant. I mean, what's that going to produce? I, I haven't got a clue, but presumably something bad. But the point I would also make is that initially, and this is something from my uh, memory, nuclear power was sold in Britain as not only the technology of the future, it was sold on the basis that it's such a wonderful technology, it would mean that electricity will be free. And that's what we were sold, nuclear power, um, in the 1950s. And I certainly remember uh, a very young Tony Wedgwood Ben as the Minister of Technology in Wilson's government, not only selling us uh, Concord, uh, but the wonders of uh, nuclear power and trying to close down uh, the coal um, um, industry. Why? Because the coal industry, of course, wasn't just unprofitable, was it? It had miners um, in it. And that is something they wanted uh, to get rid of, not because they were concerned with people's health, uh, but they were concerned about the balance of class forces. So closures were happening under Labour governments and speeded up under Tory uh, governments. But my main point here is that really what was going on in Britain 
is uh, the development of nuclear weapons. That was the real point of uh, the nuclear uh, program. Britain wanted to become an independent nuclear power. It didn't actually succeed at the end of the day. It had its nuclear bomb. But when it came to delivery systems, it abandoned the V bombers. It abandoned, again, this is from my memory, missiles comes to my mind, Blue Streak. I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember Blue Streak. And they went for the American Polaris, uh, which would not be a land-launched uh, missile, uh, but in those days, and still to a large degree, an invulnerable submarine-based uh, uh, missile. So not detectable by satellite, uh, not gettable uh, by air aircraft or, or uh, any other easy means. But... My main point here uh, is really to counter those on the left that imagine uh, that nuclear power is now some sort of answer to global warming. I think that's uh, delusional. Uh, nuclear power is incredibly expensive, vastly more expensive than coal, vastly more expensive than gas, and now amazingly, vastly more expensive uh, than wind uh, or solar power. And when people tell me, looking out the window as I, I'm here in my office, I look out and it's, well, it's dark now, so it's no sunshine. Earlier, it was completely clouded. The fact of the matter is that with solar power, it's remarkable what you can do with it now, even under cloudy conditions. But you can also do things like they do with the excess nuclear power from France uh, that at the moment perhaps is powering my lights and my computer. Uh, you can pump it over. Uh, by cable. Why not set up um, solar power uh, um, in the Sahara Desert and put it into Europe? Either way, it's a delusional um, solution. And what we need to be doing on the left is actually questioning growth for the sake of growth. We don't go along with the idea that the growth of GDP is a wonderful thing. Uh, we are not adherents of production for the sake of production accumulation for the sake of accumulation. We reject that model. And what we want is production for the sake of need. Uh, and therefore our power requirements actually potentially go down um, while people are well-fed, well-housed. Uh, you can have a situation of actually reducing uh, power uh, usage. Okay, the last point, because I've got a tiny bit of time and I just wanted to bung it in. Yesterday, there was a conference, I think it was called L Labour Campaign for Free Speech. Some 300 uh, people attended. Of course, it was online. Uh, there were plenty of good speakers there. Um, Ronnie Casals, um, former spy master under the capitalist government of... Um, um, Nelson Mandela, he advocated freedom of speech, but not for fascists, not for racists, not for misogynists. Tony Greenstein, great comrade, freedom of speech, but not for fascists, not for misogynists, not presumably for transphobic uh, uh, people. We, on the other hand, we actually advocated freedom of speech unrestricted freedom of speech. And what we had uh, is a situation where bizarrely, Tony put in uh, an amendment uh, making his objections to freedom of speech clear. Uh, we put in an amendment saying um, unrestricted freedom of speech, freedom to organize, freedom of uh, assembly. 
And the nature of these conferences, unfortunately, the way that it was organized is conference voted, voted for both. <laughs> it, voted, it voted for unrestricted freedom of speech and freedom to organize on the one side. So we won. We had 46% of the vote, but then you had abstentions and people voting no, but we, we were a majority. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Tony Greenstein had 56%. Uh, for his so the chair announced well both sides have won and well what do we do and uh, anyway the main point i want to make of course that has to be sorted out uh, do we have a freedom of speech campaign in the labor party and in wider society that says freedom of speech and then in its founding statement then says but but not for these people or do we have a freedom of speech campaign that says unrestricted and we mean it well we mean it and what we had is a lot of comrades who regard themselves as Marxists lining up and describing our position as liberal. That if you stand for freedom of speech, you're a liberal. This is nonsense, absolute nonsense. It's liberals that want to restrict freedom of speech, who want to pass laws uh, restricting uh, the working class movement and working class people from saying what they want in the way that they want to say it. And we're in favor of people putting their words in the way they want to put it. And if that offends people, we say, well, get used to it, grow a skin. But we had people telling us that freedom of speech, unrestricted freedom of speech is a liberal uh, concept. Well, we took the words from an organization in Russia that was not called the Russian Social Democratic Liberal Party, we took the words from the program of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party that was agreed in 1903 with the votes of Martov, with the votes of Pekhanov, and with the votes uh, of uh, V.I. Lenin. And that's the program that the Bolsheviks stood on. Are the Bolsheviks a liberal organization? Were they putting forward liberal sentiments when they said unrestricted freedom of assembly, freedom of expression. No, they were not a liberal organization. They said uh, that in free expression is the air that the working class movement needs. Without the freedom of expression, we cannot convince our class. We cannot convince other classes uh, about our cause. We need unrestricted freedom of speech. The other side wants to restrict freedom of speech. I also quoted in my little uh, contribution, a certain Karl Marx, um, who famously said uh, that you cannot have freedom of speech, which he stood for, right, without thorns. And what he meant by that is, of course, freedom of speech uh, produces a situation of where people freely express, express ideas we find abhorrent. That's absolutely right. But what's the best way to fight abhorrent ideas? In our view, it's out in the open, especially in a situation where the bourgeoisie actually is in control of the state. When they need fascists, they will call upon the fascists. Uh, have no uh, uh, doubt uh, about that. But we need freedom of speech. And it's also worth quoting to many of these comrades who view themselves as Trotskyists, that if you take Leon Trotsky, in the 1930s, he was famously prepared to go to the United States and, and testify before Congress um, against the proposal 
uh, to ban the Communist Party of the USA and the US Nazi Party. Uh, he stood for freedom of speech. Now, that doesn't mean that we're pacifists. It doesn't mean that we don't organize self-defense. It doesn't mean that we don't organize offense. We're in favor of an armed working class. We're not pacifists, uh, but we don't elevate what is, under certain circumstances, a legitimate tactic of no platforming someone, of denying them um, a platform, of smashing up uh, their meetings. Uh, we're quite prepared to do that under certain circumstances, but that for us is a tactic, not a principle. And again, just finally on all of that, a lot of comrades were quoting um, the Spanish Civil War um, and uh, who stood for freedom of speech in the Spanish Civil War on the Republican side? Well, it certainly wasn't uh, the official Communist Party. They're also quoting um, Cable Street. Should be pointed out, some of these comrades really ought to go and read the history. Should be pointed out uh, that the Battle of Cable Street was not a matter of principle uh, for the Communist Party, which was clearly the main organizing force. Uh, when it came to the Battle of uh, Cable Street, right? Uh, they were proposing, uh, instead of fighting uh, Mosley, they were proposing to have their prearranged rally uh, in Trafalgar Square in solidarity with the Spanish Republic. But read a book, I presume it's available on the web, uh, by um, the communist MP um, um, after uh, World War II, or during World War II, Phil Paratin. Um, MP for the Jewish area of East London. Read his book, Our, Stad, Our Flag Stays Red. And what he described is actually breaking the Communist Party in his area, Stepney and that sort of area, breaking uh, the Communist Party from physical confrontation, automatic physical confrontation between the Communist Party and the uh, black shirts, the British Union of Fascists. And he actually persuaded the party uh, to pursue different tactics, to put emphasis on the electoral question, but also in terms of fighting the bosses and fighting landlords. And there was a famous case that he describes of uh, a rent strike where the tenants were going to be evicted because they couldn't afford the rents. And the Communist Party and uh, the local labor movement rallied to the defense of all of the tenants. And he, he describes afterwards having won a victory going around talking to people and someone uh, who he met that they defended was a, a member of the British Union of Fascists and when he knocked on the door uh, this person said you defended me uh, the Communist Party defended me the BUF didn't ever show up to defend me I get my BUF card and that's what I think of the BUF and comrades were telling us yesterday that the only argument you can have with a fascist is by using a pavement. I think this is just stupid. The last point I would make is just quoting a guy called Ricky Tomlinson, one of the Shrewsbury Two. They used to be 25 and then they were three, but one of the Shrewsbury Two, along with Des Warren. Des Warren was in the Communist Party, right? What was Ricky Tomlinson a member of? The National Front. And anyone who tells me that the only argument you have with uh, Ricky Tomlinson is to introduce you to introduce him to the pavement is pig ignorant and stupid and an enemy of the working class and not a friend uh, of the working class. The working class needs better leadership uh, than just saying there's a fascist 
and the only good fascist is a dead fascist. No, we need to win people over to our side. And we can do it because our ideas are better. Our ideas are based on human liberation and the truth.